Job chapter 3. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let the the clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the night terrify it that night. Let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none. Nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept and I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt the ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Why was I not a hidden stillborn child as infants who never see the light? Where the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and the life to the bitter in soul? Who long for death, but it comes not? Who dig for it more than hidden treasures? Who exceedingly or rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sign comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we want to lift up our eyes now to the one our help comes from. I ask uh, that in this dark, dark chapter, you will help us to see the light of Christ and the gospel. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the tale of William Cowper reads much like a tragedy. Uh, He was born in 1731 in UK, and his life is racked with trial. His life is a tale of a Christian poet and a hymn writer who um, began with suffering because when he was only a mere six years old, his mother uh, passed away. And the, the heaviness of that never left him. Uh, in fact, when he was uh, later, close to 60, 50 some so years later, he pens this poem regarding the loss of his mother where he says, I heard the bell tolled on thy burial day. I saw the hearse that bore thee slow away and turning from my nursery window drew a long, long sigh and wept at last adieu. You sense the heaviness that like Job, he shares in his anguish in a poetic form. And to make matters worse, after his mother passed away, uh, William was sent off to boarding school. And when he was sent off to boarding school there, he found himself uh, treated horribly. 
by his peers. Uh, He was tortured by them. He was bullied by them in the boarding school. Uh, When he became a a younger adult, he began to be engaged to this woman for a a few years. And in the middle of this, uh, his dad forbade the marriage and said, you shall not marry her. And so his life was just sorrow and grieving and trial and depression. By the time he entered his 30s, he had a complete mental breakdown. He ended up in the mental hospital, which you need to understand during his era in the 1700s was often a grotesque place to to dwell. And as he's there, um, as the Lord would have it, he ends up um, running into the man who runs the entire asylum, who was a committed Christian. And six months later, as he develops this relationship with, the, with this Christian uh, leader of the mental ward, he comes to Jesus Christ. He turns from darkness to light. In his own words, he says, he's reflecting on that moment where he started to trust finally in Jesus. He says, unless the almighty arm had been under me, in other words, holding him up, I think I should have died with gratitude and joy. My eyes filled with tears and my voice choked with transport. I could only look up to heaven in silent fear, overwhelmed by wonder and love. Friends, Cowper faced, even as a Christian, four more periods of dark depression in his life. I mean, here was a Christian, a poet, a hymn writer who's written hymns that we love and know well today, like there is a fountain filled with blood or oh, for a closer walk with God. Um, and yet, even this committed Christian, he, he finds himself in a great state of depression. In fact, the last day that he lived, his dying day, he died in heavy depression. But friends, here's what we believe. As he trusted in Christ, he went from being in the lowest of lows in that single moment to the highest heavens. That's what we believe about William. It's the model that we see in his life that's suffering now, but glory later. It's the same model, the same pattern that we find in Job's life, suffering now, but glory later. And as we turn to consider Job this morning, we remember that Job is in a great, great state of depression. Uh, There's no hope of him at this moment. He has no, well, don't worry, tomorrow it's all going to turn out for, for good. For him, he's stuck, as it were, in this moment. He sees no way out of this heaviness, this depression, this suffering and anguish that he's in. Job is alone, and he's in misery. And while you and I, we know what's going on behind the curtain. We know how this book began. Uh, We're aware of what happened. We know what is at stake in all of this. But Job only knows that he's lost everything. Recall how this began, that Job um, went from being one of the elite to being in the ER room. Uh, Job chapter 1 showed us a man, as we've said last week, I would encourage you if you didn't hear it to go back because it sets up the framework for this entire book uh, to listen to last week's message because what we saw was in Job, not just a good man, but a great man. We saw a man who was wealthy, who was the greatest man in the East. We saw a man who, who uh, was very upright and, and turned away from evil, shunned from evil, and walked with the Lord in humility. 
We saw a man who cared not just about his own heart and soul, but a man who cared about his children's souls. So he sacrificed as a priest. Before the time of the priesthood, he sacrificed these sacrifices for his children because he so cared for them. And what we found and, and saw was that Satan, the Satan, the accuser, that he met with God and there was this agreement that not only could the accuser take away all of Job's livestock and his servants, but also eventually his children and eventually Job's health. And the whole crux of this entire book is that Job will not curse God, that he will maintain that God is good, even if he's very confused as to why this is all happening. It is very clear and we need to catch this and we'll need to bring this up again and again with our time in Job. Job was a righteous man. We agree he was not a sinless man, but he was a upright and righteous man. And so therefore, Job is not suffering because of his sin. Quite the opposite. We see in this book that he is suffering because of his righteousness. And the result is here that he sits in silence. Now, I want to rewind to chapter 2. I didn't cover this last week. I want you to see in chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, this moment of silence here. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz, the Tamanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. They made appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. No one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Now, I will be very brief here in the words of Alison Krauss, where she sings, you say it best when you say nothing at all. To to, to hear Proverbs uh, chapter 17, uh, verse 28, whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. How much more true is this right here for Job's friends? And when we come to someone who is struggling and grieving, I think we'll see that the very best thing that these three friends do is be quiet. Um, You know, I do love it when when Christians will name their children biblical names. Uh, So, you know, we think of uh, David or Benjamin or or Isaac or Mary, these biblical names that some of us have named our children. And I, I think that's great. But I hope you catch and understand there's a reason nobody is named Zophar. There's a reason nobody is named Eliphaz or Bildad. And it's not just that Bildad's a strange name. I think if someone was named Zophar, that would be a great name. But it's because, friends, we'll see in these coming chapters that these are not comforters. These are discouragers. But for this brief moment, we see that they do do something correct. They do something right. They sit in silence. I I recall my my Greek professor, um, he shared this story where he 
His, his daughter passed away when she was about 14. They were, uh, she was running track and, and field, and she was running, and she dropped dead. And during this great uh, tragedy, he, of course, uh, took a leave of absence from the seminary, and he spent time with his family grieving this terrible loss. And then when he came back from his leave, he shared how he was in his office, and he's trying to get, you know, get back to, used to being back to work. And one of the other professors, um, uh, Dr. John Wex, he came in and he would sit in his office with him. He says, you know, while I'm there trying to do some of my work, John would bring in some of his papers to grade. He would bring in a book to read or, or some other work to get done. And he wouldn't say anything. He might walk in and say, good morning. I'm glad, glad to see you here. And he would just sit down and work. And his mere presence was communicating something to Dr. Trevine to, to, to share love without trying to get into all of the heaviness of what he might want to, sh- to share. What, what great wisdom for us. Far too often when our fellow brothers and sisters are grieving, we can begin to say some of the stupidest and dumbest things. And so church, hear me out on this. Let's not try to solve the tension of people in our church body who are suffering by easing their pain with man-made wisdom. Saying things like, well, at least you still fill in the blank. Uh, we can be tempted to try and ease the tension people are going through. This last week, I heard the story of this man in his mid-20s. He, was, he had fourth stage um, cancer, and they said, you only have three or four months left to live. Now, through fasting and other things, he, he ended up um, he's still with us. But during this season, while he's told you only have months yet to live, um, his friends came to him and they said, oh, well, at least, you know, you and your wife, you don't have kids yet. So at least that. And he said, these sort of comments that people would come and share were just the, it was man-made wisdom that was unhelpful for him. It's far better for us to say something like, I don't really know how you feel, but I'm praying for you. It's far better for, for us to say something like, I'm here and I care. And then just shut up and just sit with the person. While someone is grieving, we need to resist the urge to fix the tension. Um, but it is good for us to sit with them in their suffering, isn't it? Um, we think of Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We think of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to a house of feasting, right? And so we think of these things, it is good for us, it's good for you and I to sit with those who mourn. It's, it's good. And, and in our words, uh, sometimes, we're t- sometimes we're trying to bring an end to this grieving. It can be easy to rush, try and rush through the grieving. You, you've all heard the cycle of, of grief where you have this, um, you know, anger or denial and depression and then finally acceptance. And we want to push through that as Westerners. We want to push through that as quickly as possible. And yet one of the things that we'll see in the book of Job is if, if we consider it, it's bouncing back and forth between all these things. But it's, and this is how the human experiences is we, we go through this. And it's not just a one time through. Sometimes you're bouncing from one to the other. Sometimes when you think you've arrived at everything's great, I've just accepted this, you find yourself all of a sudden launched back into anger or some other thing. And we'll see that with Job here. Um, but friends, it's, it's, it's good to let the work of grieving happen in our lives, to allow this to do the good work that God intends in our hearts for this to happen. Now here, 
chapter three, we're entering this poetry. Chapters one and two, you'll see this in your Bibles, how it's narrative. And so the words kind of go all the way across the page and it, and it is in narrative form. But then you'll see here at chapter three, where all of a sudden the, the paragraphs get cut over because here we're entering this poetry. And this begins in chapter three and it carries all the way through chapter 38. So, you know, for like 35 some chapters here, we'll be in poetry. And the way this functions, the way I hope that you'll see this is as Job and his three friends begin to go back and forth, it is not as if they're in a narrative form where they're talking back and forth like you and I may have a conversation out in the hall. That's not how this goes. What we see here, it's like a play where each one's given their script and they're facing the audience and they're speaking out into the air. Now they'll bounce back and forth and, and respond but it, but it's not a, a, the way this poetry works, it's, it's to let these things just be aired out there. So we might understand it in those terms. But through this opening chapter here in this poetry this morning, what we'll come to see is that dark suffering can lead a genuine Christian to mourn asking why. Dark suffering can lead a genuine Christian to mourn asking why. Therefore, we must come alongside our friends and Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ who mourn. And in the words of Paul, uh, as Tim said earlier, we rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. And as we look here at chapter three, we'll see Job cursing three different moments. He will curse the night. He will curse the day. And then we'll see he curses his lack of rest. So first, Job curses the night. Now, As we consider verses 1 through 10, or specifically 3 through 10, um, there's a lot of darkness. The word dark or darkness is brought up a lot here. And this is interesting because creation is always connected with what? Light. Uh, We we go back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then in verse 3, he says, let there be light, right? And, And we know this because... Creation is connected with bringing light into something. And Job, in a sense here, what he's doing, he's wanting to undo creation by bringing darkness into these moments. And Job is using this dark language to to wish that it would be undone, specifically this first section, the night of his conception. So look again at verses 6 through 10 with me. He's saying that night, meaning the night of his conception, let that night be Thick darkness, seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months, meaning the nine months of, of, of child. Uh, behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse it curse the day who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let no hope for light. Let, let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning. Because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Now, that night that Job was conceived, spiritually speaking, was a, a night of joy and light. A life had been created. Uh, it, it was an important night because not only would Job be created in the image of his parents so that he looked similar to his parents, but also he's born in the image of his creator And it's such a positive scene for his parents. But Job wishes that that night would be undone. 
He's wishing that it never happened, that his parents in anguish would not be able to have conceived. But further, he wishes here something interesting, that, that word Leviathan. He wishes the Leviathan would be roused. Now, I'm not going to go deep here. We'll get to this in chapter 41, where we'll spend more time with this. But, but first, you need to understand that Leviathan was a great sea monster. The, the Canaanites believed and thought that Leviathan was, was responsible for rousing up tragedies or even bringing about an eclipse. Um, so this idea of Leviathan was something to bring destruction, so to bring chaos and darkness. And so this is why Job is wishing that this Leviathan would be roused up to devour that night of conception, to bring darkness into that moment. And so you and I, we, we could think of something like ba- the Balrog from the Lord of the Rings, this, this creature that when stirred up can bring great destruction to the fellowship. And so to Job wishes the Leviathan would be roused to destroy him as a baby in the womb. Recall the entire argument of this book of the Satan, the accuser, is that he is accusing Job's character that he would be one to quickly turn from God and curse God. And not just curse God, but curse God to his face. He says, I, I, he's not going to just turn and curse you when you bring this destruction upon him. He's going to curse you to his face. It's very interesting here. Job does curse, but he doesn't curse God. He never curses the Lord. Praise the Lord. He, he curses the night that he was conceived. And now we see he turns and curses the day that he was born. Look at verses 11 and 12. Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me or why the breasts that they should nurse? Here, Job's suffering has just led him to wish that he would have been stillborn. Okay, if the night of conception worked out, why not Bring it to the place where I was just stillborn. Or that I was born and a couple days later I fell sick and that was the end. That would have been better. What is the point of all this, of this life if I've come to this point? Why, why be conceived? Why be born? Why be raised up? If now in this moment I've lost everything and I'm just sitting in this great suffering trial. So then he hits upon the fact that death is the great equalizer. The verses that follow right after this, he says, no one escapes it. Nobody gets away from death. Death comes for great, it comes for small, it comes for rich, it comes for poor, it comes for kings, it comes for those uh, who are uh, peasants in the land. It even comes for those who are, in, who are free or in prison. Death comes for all. And when it does, he makes this comment that even those who are enslaved by their masters, once they've once they're dead, they're freed from their slavery. Friends, even as a believer here, Job is pictured as one who is mourning, who is weeping, who is asking the hard questions and wishing for things that are extreme. Even though we must come again and again to Job being a righteous man, he is a man who speaks harshly here. In Job chapter 6 at verse 3, we'll, we'll, we'll see him say, I have spoken rashly. He says, I've been rash. My words have been rash. And this just reminds us that even a godly man, even a righteous, upright man who turns from evil and fears the Lord can at times speak rashly. We should expect this when we come to our fellow brothers or sisters who are suffering. We shouldn't be entirely shocked 
when they may speak things in a crisis and utter words that later they come back and say, you know, I, I need to say I, I misspoke there. We shouldn't be offended. We shouldn't be quick to rebuke them. Um, we should be patient with them because they, they're likely to come back and say, and you know this, how many times have you been in a crisis and where you uttered out something and, and later you come back to your spouse or your loved ones and you say, you know, forgive me, I, I misspoke. That's not true. That's not really what I believe. I, I misspoke in my rashness. And yet at the same time, we need to understand that Job is not in sin for asking the question, why? Why? Why is a good question? And he asks it here in this chapter six times. Because dark suffering can lead a genuine Christian to mourn asking why. Um, it is the question that has echoed down through the centuries. It's the question that is on many of your lips and your hearts as you consider what you've been going through. As you consider the, the, the pain and the trial that you've faced, you ask yourself, Lord, why? It's echoed down from the pen of King David in Psalm 22 where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the same thing that even Jesus cries from the cross in his darkness. Why? Why? God, have you forsaken me? One pastor put it that Job felt forsaken by God, but wasn't. Where Jesus felt forsaken by God, and he was. You see, friends, Job felt forsaken. Jesus was forsaken. And why did Jesus need to suffer in anguish, feeling the separation from God, his Father, while David and Job and others may not fully understand in their time, and they ask why. When we look to Christ, we understand something. And when we hear that why, we know. Scripture says, For our sake, God made him who, know, who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Elsewhere, Scripture says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And elsewhere, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. If we can be honest for a moment here, I think the truth is that this suffering that Job is going through, this is the type of suffering that if we're really brutally honest, this is the suffering that our sin deserves. Friends, if, if we're honest, our act of rebellion of turning from the God, the God who created us, it makes us worthy of, of suffering and death. Being that all sin is a form and way of telling God, no God, we're not going to do it your way. We're going to come up with our own ways of thinking, our own ways of doing. What we deserve is to be stuck like Job with no hope and no answers. Where you never get anything in response. But in God's redemptive plan, he's provided a way out of all this through the suffering of his son so that all the pain and physical and spiritual heartache that you and I go through and that we should have suffered in our rebellion against a good God has been placed on Jesus Christ. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us so that Rather than merely sleeping in the grave with kings and princes, you and I, we will stand alive forever with our Savior. 
And as we stand, we're going to enter into a true and better rest. One that Job even considers and wishes. And so friend, if you are with us this morning, and you've been through tremendous pain and trial, and you're in your heart longing for rest, I want to tell you about the hope and the joy that we have in Jesus Christ that can be yours. And if this hope is not yours, please, afterwards, see me. Uh, See one of the fellow Christians in this room who would love to talk to you about the joy that is found in Jesus Christ alone. Because Christians, we need rest. It's the very thing that Job will see now. He's crying out for rest from all of this. He's cursed the night. He's cursed the day. And now he curses his lack of rest. Look at verses 20 through 26. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter soul, who long for death, but it comes not, who dig for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God is hedged in? For my sign comes instead of my bread. My groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. You see this flow. Here's the logic. I wish that I had not been conceived. But since I was, I wish that I was born a stillborn. Since I was born healthy, I wish that perhaps I would have just died not much later. But since I have, even now in this moment, I just wish the grave would swallow me up and that I would finally at least have joined my kids and be at rest. The Roman writer Ovid, he writes and describes someone who has been cursed where they have the reason for dying, but not the means for dying. And I think that that's what we see Job here has all the reasons for wishing to just be dead and done away with, but not the means. Job is stuck. He's longing for rest. And many have said that this is one of the darkest chapters actually in the Bible. We then find Job saying in verse 23, it doesn't make sense that light would dawn on someone that God is hedged in. And it's an interesting turn of phrases because remember back in Job chapter one, wasn't that the very thing that the accuser Satan said to God about Job? Hey, God, you've hedged him in. You've protected him. He is, nobody can get at him or disrupt his life. His life is one of joy and perfection. He's hedged in. And now Job uses that exact same word and says, oh, I've been hedged in. But now I'm hedged in with an an animal in the cage and I can't get out. Terror has overcome me and there's no escape at this moment. No relief. See how many times he's hitting on this need then for rest. So you go back to verse 13. For then I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept and I would have been at rest. Verse 17, there the wicked cease from troubling and there the weary are at rest. And then after questioning why light is given to those who are in misery, in other words, why is Job still alive at this point? Why has he not died? 
Well, he returns back to his desire for rest in the final verse here, verse 26. I'm not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. As an aside, I just I would like to highlight here that for Job, even though he longs for death, even though he says, I would just rather at this point be dead, he is not going to actively carry that out. See, in Job's way of understanding, he knows it would be wrong and immoral. It would not be good for him to take another person's life, nor for him to take his own life. He understands that that would be an offense to God, his creator. He may long for it. He may long for it, but he's not going to seek that out himself. He's just simply longing for God's rest from all his suffering. Rest, rest, rest. How many of us here this morning even, we long for rest? Hebrews chapter 4 calls us paradoxically to enter into rest. It says, therefore, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Uh, the Jews in, in Moses' day, they sought a true rest. And, and uh, though with Joshua, they rested in the land, the author makes it very clear that there is actually another type of rest to be had. So not just living in the land with peace and with produce, but a, a rest that goes beyond that. A rest that only God himself in the gospel can give to us. So while our bodies may cry out for rest in the physical sense, the scriptures are actually more concerned with a rest that is spiritual. A rest that puts our asking of why at ease. A rest that reminds us that our suffering is not the end of the story. A rest that sees Jesus bearing the work and the suffering that is above and beyond anything we can ask or imagine. This is why in chapter 4 of Hebrews, it highlights, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Jesus says to us even this morning, Come, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, the rest that God really ultimately is calling us into is a rest that, like Job longed for, was one that declares that you are justified and innocent. See, if Job knew why he was suffering, I don't think it would bother him so much. See, he's crying out for rest, but I believe if what we read in chapters 1 and 2 were told to him, I think he would be quiet. I think he would say, I understand what this is all for. See, Job, we'll see, is longing for someone to come and declare him righteous so that he could rest saying, I am justified. In faith, trusting in my God, not a perfect human, but yes, walking blameless, turning from evil, trusting in Yahweh. If someone would come and give me that rest, it would be a rest that would carry me through the pain and the suffering I go through knowing that his suffering is not out with, without purpose. And friends, you need to understand that if you know Jesus, you have that kind of rest now. Because first Philippians chapter 2 calls us into a suffering that is identifying with our Savior. So that as he suffered, so too we must suffer. But we know that Christians being justified, forgiven, redeemed, we're entering a rest that says, I am not suffering to pay the price for my sin. 
No, rather, I'm identifying with my Savior. And that's the kind of rest I long for you to have this morning. Kind of rest that won't ignore obedience to Christ either. When it says, I'm resting in what he's called me to, to trust him in what he's called me to do. Job's obedience here to refuse to curse God points forward to the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. Notice the main concern for Job, as you consider this chapter, he's not really looking for uh, an understanding saying, my sheep, my sheep, or my oxen, my oxen, my children, my children, my health, my health. No, I think he's saying, where is my God in all of this? Why am I in this place? Where are you, God, to stand up and defend me? Friends, we know how this story began, and we will see later how this story ends. What it means is suffering now for Job, but glory later. And as we ourselves sit, not only with our friends and our loved ones and fellow Christians who suffer, we need to let them speak into the air, being patient with them. We must weep with those that weep. We must be sorrowful, but always rejoicing. And when appropriate, We want to gently remind them that the Christian is one who is not surprised by the fiery trial when it's come upon them. Knowing that for Christians, we will face trials, but they will have their perfect work in us, leading us to heaven's gate. Because the pattern that we see is the pattern of trial before triumph. Job suffers and then he's restored to more than he had prior. Jesus suffers on the cross before arising to and resurrecting to amazing joy. And so too for the believer. We may ask why, but we understand the greater thing that God is doing in and through your life. It is suffering now, longing for glory that will come later. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray the words of Isaiah, comfort, comfort your people. I know, Father, that we, we don't always see the reasons for things that we face. Um, and though our suffering through our trials bring us to more trust and dependence upon you. And I pray that that's the work that will be done in us so that we may have a kind of rest that you long for us now to have. Not a rest that brings an end to physical pain or relationship heartache, but a rest that says, Christ has justified me. I stand innocent before God Almighty, and I'm able to identify with him in his suffering. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.